Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Okay, that hour was um, was kind of challenging and um, and a little bit exhausting. So this next uh, half hour, at least, is going to be uh, much lighter. <clears throat> Peter Kapsner is going to join me, and we're going to talk about, well, witches for sure. Um, but I'm going to lead off with this. All right, so I have four fun, fun, funish, funish headlines because every once in a while we got to lighten it up. All right, so. There is an experiment underway at the University of California, Davis, which is pitting sheep against lawnmowers. So now I got to tell you that uh, goats, like without a question, goats would win the competition. If you if you pitted a goat against a lawnmower, the goat would win for sure. So I don't know how the sheep is going to work out, but uh, here you go. They have uh, there's an acre of land at UC Davis where the sheep are trimming the grass. And uh, there's another acre of land where the University of California Davis ground crew is maintaining the lawn with conventional lawnmowers. And researchers are, you know, tracking several things during the experiment. Which side of the lawn looks better? You know, how much fertilizer is required? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so, um, I mean, it's like a legit research project. And you can see how this might play out over time. But you can also imagine that they can put the lawnmowers up at night in a shed with a lock and not worry about them. And the sheep, well, you know, cougars, coyotes, right. So what do you need? You need at least one human being known as a, drumroll, shepherd to watch the sheep. So even in this experiment of the sheep versus the lawnmower, there is an opportunity for you and I from a Christian worldview to get God into the conversation, because after all, we can talk about the shepherd. Ezekiel thirty four thirty one might come to mind. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture. I am your God, declares the Lord. All right, uh, scientists are also busy zapping clouds with electricity, seeking to make rain. Uh, I thought this was an interesting little piece as well. You and I could talk about Rain. We could talk about the necessity of water. We could talk about the goodness of God's creative uh, order. We could talk about life. We could talk about growth. We could also talk about the rain falling on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. All right. And then I saw this headline. There is a giant, giant tortoise who was for a hundred years thought to be extinct. Think about that for just a moment. Uh, he is living in uh, Galapagos. So there you go. There's a there's a Darwin conversation to be had here. Did we ever talk about the fact that the that the Darwin arch fell? Yeah, we mentioned that a few days ago. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. So um, here's another Galapagos headline for you. Um, you know, so this is not a story about resurrection, but it is a story about the 
persistence of God's good created order and, frankly, the stuff that we as human beings think we know that maybe, well, frankly, we don't know. And while we are on, I don't know, are turtles and alligators related at all? Oh, they're both reptiles. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And in other reptile news, thank you, Paul. Are you sure? Because I, I don't know. Are, yes, are, they're both reptiles. Are turtles reptiles. Thank you. Yes. You obviously took science I more did. recently than I did. That's so good. So uh, in other reptilian news, <clears throat> there's an alligator from Louisiana who has been discovered on a beach in South Texas, which, by the way, is like 400 miles point to point. So it's raising lots of questions about how he got there. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, next up, Peter Kapsner. He and I are going to talk about, I don't know, why women are becoming witches. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. To offend in any way the intellectual superiority nor <laughs> theological heft of my next guest, guest Dr. Peter Kapsner, uh, I did not mean to suggest in any way that the conversation was going to be lightweight, just that maybe the subject matter was going to be lighter. That was all. That was my only, yeah. There you go. Well, the, the problem is, is that is that whatever heft I might bring to the table relates to being entirely intrigued with those four headlines that you just read, <laughs> Carmen. Those, those, I don't even know where to begin. Other than I understand that you actually did have a sheep at some time, uh, and maybe oh. it didn't turn out as well as as anticipated. Okay, so when I was so when I was little, we lived on a farm in Indiana, but not like a you know not like a production farm. Like I would you know, it's twelve acre farm. My dad worked for um, uh, a meat packing plant and distributor, meat, you know, meat packing. And um, so that really meant that for your birthday, you could you could ask for anything that you wanted in the livestock category and you would get it. And so one year my sister asked for a cow and she got one. And um, so I don't know, the next year, I think I was four, um, I asked for a sheep. And so, you know, in the trunk of his car came home uh, on my birthday, this beautiful little lamb. And so my birthday is in June. And so I, I raised this this little lamb uh, called Blackie because he had a black face. And um, so we raised him in, you know, six months later in Indiana. It was snowing and it was cold. Might have been January. And one of the actually one of the most significant rules at our house was, you know, we don't eat until all of the animals have eaten and are cared for. Like that's the rule. So we're sitting, we sit down to dinner. My dad looks at me full well knowing the answer to this question. Um, So, you know, Carmen, you know, the rule, uh, you know, are all of the animals taken care of? And, you know, I didn't say anything. And he said, has Blackie eaten? Have you fed Blackie? And I acknowledged that I had not. And he's like, he's like, you know, the rule. So my mom tells this story that I made. I don't remember this part, but I, that I made this big show of going, you know, putting on my boots and putting on my coat and putting on my scarf and my little hat bit of drama. and my gloves. Bit of drama. 
whole drama, whole drama. And, you know, marching out from the house to the barn, which was a good distance for a four-year-old in the snow in Indiana at the time. And, you know, and she says, you know, we watched. We could see the barn door pulled just enough that you could slide in. And, um, you know, a couple minutes pass and you slide back out and you make quite a quite a demonstration, quite a show of trudging back and, and taking off all of these layers and sitting back down at the table and, you know, us moving on and starting dinner. And the first words out of your mouth after a period of time were, Daddy, don't you think Blackie's about big enough to go back to the slaughterhouse? (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. I mean, that's like giving a puppy back. You can't do that, Carmen. Oh, yeah. So here is when I learned that if you do this right, you don't just get the gift. You then get a check. Oh, right. So you were were able to make lemonade out of a lemon situation right there. It's terrible, right? It's terrible. Yes. And which I think is why my shepherding has been brought into question many, many times since. That's a great story. (laughs) Love that story. It has nothing to do with women becoming witches, which is really the conversation that you and I were going to have today. Yeah. What's what's going on, Peter? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and I have covered this a little bit before, and there is actually... Uh, I, I wouldn't say a, a terribly statistically significant rise in witchcraft, but there certainly is uh, interest in this medium. And I think lest we dismiss this as just complete hoax, um, the Bible obviously has uh, admonitions against witchcraft, and that would indicate that witchcraft really can be uh, an actual thing, and, and people can practice it. And to what effect, I don't really know entirely for sure, but I, I think we would be remiss to not give some credence to what might be happening in the spiritual realm. Now, obviously, believers can't be uh, deeply impacted, and you know we can talk about, about a theology of witchcraft, but I think what's interesting about it is that it's really being underpinned by a certain kind of feminism in which women are trying to find some measure of expression of power when they feel otherwise somewhat powerless. And and so it's kind of intriguing for these women to enter into this sort of form uh, of spiritual expression, especially, I think, Carmen, when you combine it with what I know we all are increasingly hearing, which people are not interested in being a part of organized religion any longer, and yet people have not at all stopped being interested in the realm of the spiritual. And so in, in this, witchcraft is, is, is an outlet for women to sort of express themselves spiritually, to find some sense of power, to find some sense of purpose in which they can control the events around them. And there's so many opportunities for the church in all of this. There's opportunities for, for us as uh, shepherds to, to be rethinking, like, how do we have to address the things in the culture? But it's, it's another expression of the powerless trying to find some measure of power in witchcraft. And again, I just want to caution without getting all sort of looney tune about it that there is clearly the scriptures, I mean, you have the witch of Endor, right? That Saul goes to, the king of Israel clearly believes that she has some sort of power to help guide his future. And in that story, we see the witch of Endor able to raise Samuel up out of the grave. And of course, Samuel then gives Saul this warning, you know, basically, dude, what are you doing here? And tomorrow you and your sons are going to be with me. But uh, maybe the last point about all of this is that up until maybe about 100 to 150 years ago, when science really began to take over how to best explain the world. And, and that's fraught with peril to even believe that's true. But witchcraft was still obviously a thing very recently. And, and I think it's just another one of those things that seems maybe silly that the church should attend to. And yet it's a real thing going on in our culture. It is a real thing going on in the culture today. There is a rise in, uh, in, 
in witchcraft. Um, and I think that it's a good conversation for Christians to be equipped to have, especially when people imagine that they can sort of just dabble in it, that there's no, right. um, that there's nothing wrong in playing around with or toying with the occult. And and so I just wanted to highlight it again today and and just recognize there is real spiritual danger here and uh, and just sort of want to have people guard themselves against it. All right, let's take a very brief break, um, Peter. And then when we come back, let's talk about this conversation that is that is now happening about the potential of a sexual counter-revolution. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Um, all right, we have listeners who are asking us questions, Peter, like, you know, how would you go about getting God into the conversation? Um, you know, I was at a graduation party, this listener says, uh, and their high school son, um, they're Christians. I saw a box, uh, a card, it's called something about the medium. So my quick response yeah. um, to you is, you know, toying with the occult is dangerous. And so you know, play, literally playing games is not is not okay. I'd also say that, you know, there's sort of places and times for conversations and probably a graduation party is not one of those. Um, but maybe at some other point in time when you can have a conversation with one of those parents, just make the observation that you saw the game and um, just sort of was, you're wondering about that, you know, what's that game about? Um, what's included in that? Do they see the dangers of uh, toying with the occult. Like, I think that's yeah. probably where I'd start. Yeah, I think so too, Carmen. I think another place that I would look at is uh, there's, there's a book that's out somewhat recently called The Unseen Realm from Dr. Michael Heiser. And, and I've had a chance to be a part of the Bill Arnold show in the afternoons the last few weeks at five o'clock on Wednesdays. And we, we've interviewed Dr. Heisel, uh, Heiser twice in, again, about the last six weeks, his book, The Unseen Realm is really mm -hmm. helpful for empowering believers to try to understand in a responsible and faithful way what the biblical witness is about the realm of the spirit. And and I think it's such unfamiliar territory for so many of us, right? We just often don't grow up with passages like Deuteronomy 32, which in which God is sort of recounting the history of the earth to date in which he fought against foreign gods and what it meant to establish Israel uh, and, and so many of these passages. So I think if we can begin to equip ourselves in a responsible way within the spiritual realm, in a biblically faithful way within the spiritual realm, then you can start engaging in conversations with the 19-year-old who is going to be interested in spiritual things, but just come and say, so tell me about what it is that you're doing. What is it that you're interested in? What are you hoping to accomplish? And over time, if we are equipped ourselves to be able to speak articulately about this realm of the Spirit, then I think that in ways that they did in the Bible often, they would begin to point people towards the real God who has the real authority. And Deuteronomy 32 points all of that out. It doesn't discount that there are, there are other gods and, and, and fallen spirits and all of this, but it does then establish the God of heaven. So I think we can tap into the ongoing spiritual interest, even though there's been a, a significant decline in organized religion interest. It, it hasn't dampened that at all. And so this is a great chance for us to empower ourselves in terms of what is the spiritual realm. Um, I love our um, our listeners so much. Um, thank you to Phyllis, who says, this is so pertinent. I'm training right now to minister to people who have been victims of 
SRA or satanic ritual abuse. Mm, um, we have wow. another listener who says, yeah, this is so spot on. I dabbled in witchcraft in college. Um, definitely some spiritual fallout from that and makes the observation that, you know, women are looking to witchcraft because they feel disempowered in some other things. Yeah. Also noting uh, another listener noting, you know, how witchcraft is often glamorized um, on television and in movies. Um, yeah, absolutely. Amen to all of those things. Thank you for all of that engagement uh, on the text line. Um, Peter, let's um, let's take the last few minutes that we have to talk about uh, this uh, this observation that is made in The Spectator um, about a sexual counter-revolution. What's going on here? Yeah, I think on a, on a 40,000 foot view of this, there's many anecdotes within this article that represent the sexual counter-revolution. But from the 40,000 foot view, it's the idea that increasingly the next generations are not buying into what have been false promises about what was believed to be sexual freedom. I mean, this is the movement of the 1960s and 70s in which academia in particular promoted a, a version of sexuality that was about free expression. It was unhinged from anything related to procreation. It was about sensuality. It was about whatever it is that you wanted to do sexually with another person. You should be fully free to entirely express yourselves. And we are now seeing the rippling impact of that some 50, 60 years later in which young people are so confused and, and they are engaging in all of these false promises that some of the thought leaders in these areas would have expressed. And they're saying, this isn't actually working out for us. Uh, we are depressed. We are confused. Um, some of what's actually going on, the, the non-glamorized version of this stuff is just wreaking havoc. I mean, the, the stories of what's happening in sexual encounters between people, again, in, in the non-glamour of Hollywood, is is troubling down to the core and and you see this uh, emerging pornography industry that's been part of the internet these last 17 to 20 years and, and people are starting to recognize the deep impact of that as well and all of that is to say i think when we can just step back and look from a historical standpoint on this this isn't the first time that a culture has gotten deeply and, and profoundly confused on what constitutes sexual wholeness. It's, it's happened over and over and over again. It happened in the Greco-Roman Empire. It happened in the Weimar Republic of Germany. Uh, and, and the list sort of goes on. And what you see, Carmen, is there's almost always a renewal. There's, there, there's a return. There is this pendulum swing back to maybe some previous ideas around sexuality that, that could be thinking, gosh, I don't want to live this way anymore. There must be something different. But this is just like the witchcraft conversation. It is another, yet another opportunity for the church to begin to equip itself to be able to have conversations about what is wholeness and health and sexuality, because people are searching, just like they're searching in witchcraft, they're searching for something that will bring the true freedom to the soul. And these two things can actually be tied together, because when I talk to my young people, they're deeply interested in these witchcraft kinds of ideas. I'm not saying they're practicing them in, in the classes they, but these are the shows that are on Netflix for them all day long. Our stories about witchcraft and the supernatural. And I know a young woman who just finished 16 seasons or whatever it was of supernatural. And the sexual conversations are equally relevant. And yet there's a tremendous gap of at least, oh, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 years where these are not the things that the church has equipped itself with. And so we really do need shepherds to go back to that idea, shepherds that can equip the saints for ministry about what's actually going on today, not what, not what was going on two, three, four generations ago. All of those things are incredibly important. I mean, 
your your journey and my journey and the journey of the of the 90 year old in our culture is they're all really important. We just have a big gap right now in the journey of the 20 and 30 year old in terms of shepherding what they're actually dealing with. So it's pretty interesting in this counter revolution, the church suddenly has a window to say, let me help you with this. And and I think before that window closes, this would be a great time to attend to it. Yeah, there's a I think there's a redemptive or redemption conversation to have here as well. Um, because the strict criteria of these sort of sexual counter-revolutionaries, the really strict criteria that they have for, you know, their future partners um, can be super troubling, can be super troubling and really legalistic um, and not take into account the reality of the reality in which many people grow up today and um, and things to which they are subjected. And so I want to, you know, I want to be sure that as Christians, we always note um, redemption is available. It is possible. You can be redeemed and restored. Um, there's nothing that you've done in the past that ultimately <clears throat> separates you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Um, and so please hear that as Peter and I are talking um, about all of these things. So um, Peter, we got to leave it right there. As always, thank you so very much. Definitely not um, light, but um <laughs> Not light in terms of like theological weightiness, but light in terms of just it's always just a joy to visit with you. So thank you so much. Oh, I love it too, Carmen. I could talk about sheep and goats and tortoises and reptiles yeah. and counter-revolution and witchcraft all day with you. So there you go. Oh, this is so fun, man. Have a great day. We've got to take a break for Breakpoint. It is Memorial Day weekend. I don't know about the town where you live, but literally every light pole in my town now is now adorned with an American flag. Uh, I have a Veterans Memorial Cemetery between my house and the interstate, and on every uh, grave there is now an American flag. Um, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about honoring America's heroes who have served our country so well, and still being able to, you know, recognize that. You know, no no nation is perfect, including our own. So we're going to talk with Dr. Walter Strickland from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary up next. This is Max Lakato. Researchers at Pennsylvania State University concluded that huggers are happier. Another study linked hugging with a diminished rate of sickness. So greet people for your sake and experience the joy of showing people that they matter and greet people for their sake. What is small to you may be huge to them. And most of all, greet one another for Jesus' sake. He said, in so far as you did this to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. By the way, the greatest greeting in history has yet to be issued. It will be issued by Jesus to you in person. He will say, you did well. You're a good and loyal servant. And because you were loyal with such small things, I will let you care for much greater things. Come and share my joy with me. This is Max Lakato, and this is How Happiness Happens. Dr. Walter Strickland serves at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can also find him at WalterStrickland.com. Walter, welcome back. Thanks for having me once again. Well, so it's Memorial Day weekend. You have uh, plans to travel, I hear. 
which is ambitious with uh, with your family, including all your little people. <laughs> yeah, it, it should be an event. That's for sure. Yeah. Getting on an airplane with little kids is uh, <clears throat> it's a brave undertaking, man. In the middle of a pandemic? Well, I guess the, 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 the waning of a pandemic. And so that should be a whole other thing. And we have a t- our takeoff time is 6 a.m. And so mm. uh, that should be another layer of interesting as well. So we'll just kind of see how it goes. <laughs> so I'm that so I'm that person on the airplane who when the family gets on and, you know, they're trying to figure out how to negotiate all their stuff and their kids. Like I'm the person who wishes like that you knew I was a grandma and liked to hold babies. So those people are out there. I mean, I feel like, you know, there's going to be somebody on that flight who's just willing to, you know, willing to step up uh, if necessary. So, all right. (laughs) So if you guys are listening right now, be that person on an airplane this weekend for a family (laughs) that has more kids than they have adults. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's talk about Memorial Day. Let's talk about um, this. You know, I think that there are there's this deep desire um, to show very real appreciation for remembrance of the sacrifices made by our military men and women. And yet somehow there's also this like weird, weird thing going on right now where, you know, if I do that and I don't also acknowledge America's shortcomings, then, you know, I'm somehow being a nationalist instead of just being patriotic. Can you just talk us through some of that? Well, you know, as I was thinking about this particular week, uh, with, with the anniversary of George Floyd's death, and then also looking ahead to Monday, Memorial Day, uh, I just felt this sort of uh, unease as I was talking to different people. You know, I, I really do kind of sit in the middle of several communities uh, in, in some very real ways. And as I was talking about what was going on and what we we're looking forward to, what we were just experiencing this past week, it was just kind of, it was almost like in some conversations I had to, um, uh, sort of uh, venerate uh, America. And I know that Memorial Day is more about the veterans and, the, and these American heroes that we should celebrate. But, you know, many times it, it becomes more about America and our shortcomings as a nation uh, than about celebrating heroes. And so you, you, it almost feels like you have to downplay the holiday on Monday uh, because of things like, you know, the reality of George Floyd and his murder and uh, other instances that have dotted the landscape of our history uh, that are like that. And so I, I've almost felt like I've, I've had to sort of tug and pull in different ways in different conversations, because it seems like um, if we venerate our heroes, then we have to, then, it's, then for some, it's like we're mourning or we're not mourning the shortcomings and imperfections of our country. But then for some, we have to look to the shortcomings and imperfections of our country and then sort of turn our backs on our heroes. And I think that's just a false dichotomy that we're that we're drawing. And I, I, I kind of understand emotionally where those emphases come from. But at the same time, I don't think that uh, venerating and celebrating heroes and then mourning the shortcomings or imperfections of a country uh, yet, yet realizing it's not all bad are not mutually exclusive undertakings. And I, and I think as Christians, we have to begin to think about this more uh, biblically and theologically rooted, uh, as well as, you know, just thinking more compassionately about our neighbors and, uh, and about our friends and family as we're sort of walking through these two uh, pretty significant events. Uh, one, a, a new event, a new anniversary, but uh, another one with Memorial Day that's been a longstanding tradition in our country. 
So when we talk about remembrance, uh, you know, Memorial Day is about remembering the individuals. I think that's an if we can keep the the individual people in the forefront of the conversation, um, we probably have the best opportunity of doing what you just described. Um, and and so in order to do that, I have to know some of those stories. So let me encourage you if you're listening right now, you know, actually ask people to tell you the story of their fallen family member, the sacrifice that their family has made. If you don't know a military family, get to know one. Um, it's an opportunity, I think, to to cross another one of those boundaries or borders in our culture today. Um, and when we talk about remembrance, you know, Walter, walk us around in that for just a moment, because history is really whatever we remember. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, if we think about the scope of the events of history, there's no way that any person or book or or anything or telling of this of the historical narrative can capture all of the events. So really what we're doing as we're, as we're remembering, we are remembering those things that are most significant or more, most pertinent to us. And so if we're going to, if we have somebody who has served in our family and who maybe has given the ultimate sacrifice in our family, we're going to prioritize that particular story to then make sense of the rest of it or to organize the rest of the historical narrative. And so we're going to see, you know, that this is a free country and it has come at a very, very high cost. By contrast, there's others who are sort of uh, talking past each other in this conversation who have had, you know, folks who have been arrested for seemingly no reason. You, you, you'll you have people who have uh, been, you know, treated poorly um, for because of the color of their skin, perhaps in this country. And those those experiences are going to are going to, uh, em, you know, cause emphasis to be given on certain stories that they've read in the news or seen in person or things like that. And so what, what we're doing as people is that we are trying to make sense of all this information and we have to have some way of curating it. And what we do is we curate it by our experience. And so I think that um, that is so important for us. And so what you're saying is remembering by hearing stories, other people's stories, I think is so valuable for us because it really fills out the historical narrative for us. And then it allows us to understand the bitter and the sweet that comes along with any story. And I think if, if we can do that, understand the bitter and sweet of all of all these sorts of things, um, of every country, of every story, I think that's very helpful for us, uh, even this moment. All right, Dr. Walter Strickland and I need to take a very brief break. When we come back, I'm going to ask him, you know, how we might express patriotism and yet guard against nationalism. We're going to talk about what we sing, how we sing it, the symbols that we use, and how we utilize them. That That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in talking with Dr. Walter Strickland, we're just bringing Memorial Day into view here. We are talking about honoring those who have um, given the ultimate sacrifice. And we are also talking about you know, a very real and sober look at, you know, our own history as a people. So, Walter, um, you know, as as I was thinking about this conversation today, I thought, you know, I'm going to ask him, 
what might be some counsel in terms of expressing my genuine patriotism, um, but also guarding against what we would call Christian nationalism today? And in, I had an experience recently where I was in the midst of a group of people and I realized they are singing the national anthem and they are singing to the flag in a way that I could only describe as worship. It was, it was undoubtedly a, a worship experience for them. And I love our country and I honor and acknowledge the flag, but... I am a Christian first and and an American second. And so can you just talk a little bit about that tension as well? Yeah, that's that's profound. Um, And I was blessed to grow up in a church uh, in Bakersfield, California, where there's a lot of people who go off to serve in our military. And so uh, this this tension is one that um, I've actually seen uh, uh, alleviated really. And, and, uh, and then also seeing how that plays out in Christian spaces. And so with thinking about patriotism, I think this word sort of gets a bad rap, uh, these days, you know, because it's so closely linked to nationalism, but I think you're right to, uh, take these two dynamics apart and to talk about the first one as, you know, a, a devoted love or support or defense of one's country. And I, I think that's good and right to have. I mean, uh, even as, you know, persons of color in America, I think that there's a, there's a sense in which that this is our home. I mean, even, even, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois was talking about, I have this two-ness. I mean, I'm, I'm both African and American, uh, and I can't separate the two. You know, I, I can't go back to Africa because there's still some Americanness in me. And, and so that's what he would say. And, and so there, there's, there should be this sense of this is my country and there should be that, uh, devotion to it in the sense of, this is just where I'm from, and so there's a, there's a there's a sense of home, uh, despite all of the the dynamics that we're talking about. But then I think nationalism takes that uh, to a step further by uh, essentially defending what we think are our national priorities or our assumptions, uh, and having a lack of concern for others. And so it's almost kind of deifying the the nation to the point where we assume it has no faults. And I think that's where uh, many of those who are sort of have a, a more nationalistic sort of uh, edge to their patriotism, you know, have to be uh, called into some question to say, you know what, this is a, a, a country that's worth uh, being devoted to, supported in defense of. But also we have to understand that this is a country that has, that does have some things that, that can be bettered. And theologically, I think we have to understand that America is not the kingdom, uh, although it is our, it is many of our home. And so, and I think that, you know, as you're talking about the, the Christians and you're talking about, you know, um, people singing songs to the flag, uh, and it can almost be mistaken as worship. If I'm remembering exactly what you're saying, right. Um, I think we ha- we do have to understand that while we can pledge our allegiance to a flag, as far as being our home, the ultimate allegiance of the Christian is to the kingdom of God and to the work of God and the restoration of God, of which this country is not the kingdom. And so simply to say that we live in a country that's in need of the work of God to be you know, uh, alive and well in it, the restorative work of God alive and well in it, is essentially to be biblically and theologically correct and saying this is not the kingdom, 
although it's my home. And I hope that, you know, begins to help us to understand better what the distinctions between patriotism and then nationalism are. Yeah, I think it's really helpful. Um, thank you for you know just willing to willingness to roam around in this a little bit today. I do think that, you know, even giving some thought in advance to what we sing and how we sing it, giving some thought in advance to my relationship to the flag uh, versus my relationship to the cross. Um, I think it's an opportunity to have conversations about statues and memorials um, and to not be afraid of those conversations. Like those are robust conversations in our culture today. And we ought to be people who um, who know how to have those conversations and are not um, not afraid to say, you know what, that is something about that image or that um, person or that period of history that I, I wasn't aware of that. And so I didn't know that this image on this piece of cloth meant that to you, means that to you. Um, I just learned something yesterday uh, in, in terms of this. I, I didn't actually know what the Gadsden flag was until yesterday. And I feel like I'm a person who's like, fairly well-informed about things. But I didn't know what that was, and I was willing to say, wow, that is new information to me, and now I am uh, I have a heightened awareness about something that I was not aware of before. It's not that I was willful, willfully ignorant. It just hadn't come across that information in a way that, you know, or in a moment that I was ready to receive it. And so I do think there is a, and it's important to allow other people to learn like, right, we can't just shame people for not knowing things. We have to be willing to say, wow, you know, thanks for your willingness to continue to, to be open to learning. Yeah, and, and really, this, this all comes down to listening. I, I think that in our country, and even, you know, perhaps even around the world, we've spent so much time on communication, how to write, how to speak, how to say things appropriately, that we really haven't learned the skill of listening. And I think the Christian faith actually really helps us in that way. Um, you know, to, to consider others as better than ourselves, to, to listen to somebody. If there's emotion uh, in what somebody is communicating, it really is, that's a, that's a sign that there's a wound there. And, um, and, and, and many times, as opposed to sort of um, stopping and pausing and loving that person uh, in that area of hurt, we want to respond to it with our contrasting assumptions or our contrasting uh, positions. And I think that as a Christian, we really have to uh, dignify people by listening to them, even if you don't have to, you don't have to agree with somebody, uh, but even just listening to them dignifies them as a person, dignifies their emotions, and then allows us to begin to work back towards their judgments and the facts of the events that they're talking about. And so if, if you're not meeting somebody in that in the depth of their sort of struggle, you're never going to be able to talk with them about the details of the, of the situation. And that's just a uh, good you know, bearing of each other's burdens, I think, and that listening piece. Yeah, that listening piece is so important. Um, I need to be listening, not just with my ears, but with my heart. I think asking myself, where is the wound? Um, and just letting, letting, letting that part of myself where my heart goes out to another person, right? Like, where, where is the wound here? And then I'm going to listen differently. And, uh, and I might actually cultivate a relationship that otherwise um, would be utterly impossible. So Walter, thank you as always. It's always such a delight to talk with you. Blessings on your trip this Memorial Day weekend uh, and your precious family. Thank you very much. God bless. 
You too. You guys can find uh, Dr. Strickland at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. You can also find him at the Strickland Institute. Best place, WalterStrickland.com. We'll be right back. All righty. Thank you for lots of really great conversations today. Where in the Word are you today? Let's definitely get into the Word of God before we get out there into the world that God so loves. I'll just say in my own life, today is the day we are going to rehome the last two puppies in our litter. So it's it's time to say goodbye to Jack and Jill. Um, yeah, so, you know, it's harder than I expected. It's harder than I expected. Puppies are a delight. They're really fun. I have loved it. And today is the day that we go back to being a three-dog family. Three dogs is a lot, though. It's good. All right, go hug somebody today, pet a dog, put down the phone, pick up a baby, all kinds of good ways to improve our mental health uh, and our outlook. Go be a blessing to someone else, uh, act of kindness, right? All right, there you go. Great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.